This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Coronavirus continues to impact our lives across the United States, and the pain that it is causing people is real and felt from the smallest businesses to the largest organizations. Across the country, craft brewers are battling for their collective livelihoods, traversing obstacles ranging from frequently shifting local operation rules to customers who throw fits when asked to wear a mask. The challenges continue to mount as the pandemic nears its fifth month here. As brewers work to figure out how to survive until a time when their operations can return to full business, the trade organization that represents them is also feeling the pain. Based in Boulder, Colorado, the Brewers Association represents more than 5,600 U.S. breweries and nearly 50,000 home brewers, the allied trade, beer wholesalers, retailers, and other individuals. Its mission is to promote and protect American craft brewers, their beers, and the community of brewing enthusiasts. And the person in charge of the entire association is Bob Pease. Bob has worked for the BA for nearly 30 years, helping run its operations before ascending to the vice president and chief operating officer positions. In 2014, following the retirement of founder and longtime leader Charlie Papazian, Bob took over as CEO of the Brewers Association. In that role, he has helped the BA substantially grow its revenue, largely from events such as the Craft Brewers Conference and the Great American Beer Festival, but also by expanding membership. In his tenure, the BA has grown to become a nearly $30 million association, and its efforts on behalf of trade members and craft beer fans have grown substantially, including ramped up lobbying efforts in Congress and across state legislatures, broader craft beer education programs, and other online offerings. The coronavirus has not spared the BA. With the cancellation of its signature events, CBC and GABF, comes the loss of a substantial portion of the association's revenue. And with the virus continuing to rage and in-person large-scale events unlikely to return anytime soon, Bob and the BA's board of directors have had to make some very tough decisions. The BA has undertaken two rounds of staff layoffs, including several very well-known individuals, such as Julia Hers and Acacia Coast, among others and Bob and the BA are having to plan for a very different future than they expected. In our lengthy conversation, Bob walks us through the BA's decision to cancel the CBC, what the association plans to focus on in the future now that its revenue has been slashed. He goes into detail about the hiring of beverage attorney Mark Serini, and he discusses the criticism that he has received from some members of the beer media for their coverage of this hiring at a time of other staff layoffs. Bob has also been the focal point for some criticism on social media for the BA's handling of issues related to diversity, inclusion, and racial justice. We spend a lot of time in this episode asking Bob some tough questions about the BA's own diversity efforts, whether the BA should kick out breweries that have a demonstrated history of racist or otherwise objectionable behavior, and whether he believes the craft beer industry is inclusive. Please note that during the interview, we ask some challenging questions and Bob takes some time to respond, so there may be the occasional extended pause. Just keep listening. I promise it'll be worth your time. Here is my conversation with Brewers Association CEO, Bob Pease. 
after decades of success, you know, it obviously has been a very turbulent few months for the craft beer industry. As the head of the largest organization representing independent craft brewers and, you know, the members, when did you start becoming concerned about COVID? Good question. Um, middle of February, early February, I can't remember the exact dates, but for us, it was all in the context of, you know, were we going to have to cancel the Craft Brewers Conference? Right. And so that's, you know, some, I, I mean, I know when we made that decision, but um, I can't, again, I can't remember the exact date, but when it really, I do remember when it really hit me over the head by like a two by four was when I had, was having a conversation with Congressman Peter DeFazio out of Oregon mm-hmm. uh, about couple of different things. I'd just been in DC and we met and was following up with something on him. And, you know, I asked him about, well, what are you hearing, Peter, about our ability to have the Craft Brewers Conference? And what do you, what do you know? And he's like, and and Peter's been to the Craft Brewers Conference multiple occasions. And he's like, well, Bob, that's, uh, you know, you got like 10, 15,000 people there, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, and people from all over the world. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, Bob, they're telling us this is going to be a pandemic. And that was the first time I heard that word used with COVID-19. And that's when I had my kind of holy shit moment. Yeah. That this could change everything. And it is. <laughs> and yeah, and in that beginning, when you were talking about the Craft Brewers Conference, you know how how did those discussions go? Did it seem like it was going to be possible to continue on with it, or did it seem, you know, after yeah, a conversation I mean, like that, was, that it was it was you know that it was just something that couldn't be done? Like it's it, it's been like you know uh, walking through a, a a brick wall of or a, a, a cloudy wall of haze. I mean. When that so when, when all that was going on, first we were watching what was happening with South by Southwest, yeah, right, the big cultural event in Austin, and that got canceled first. And then so we're talking with the people that Denver, this the San Antonio City of San Antonio's Convention and Visitors Bureau, and they're telling us literally, like in the middle of March, that we're still open for business. Mm-hmm. You guys still can have your event here, and we're like. You know, that doesn't seem <laughs> right now real safe. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, it's okay. And and then that puts us in a precarious position financially, even more precarious, because if they insisted it was safe and we could still do the event, then all of our contracts yep. to hotels, convention centers, et cetera, millions of dollars of exposure would have to be honored. Uh, you know, there's a contract, there's a clause in all these contracts mm-hmm. called force majeure that allows you to get out of your obligation if there's, you know, a, a, you know, a pandemic or an act, something that happens much bigger than uh, that you can control. And so we actually canceled before they shut down the city. Okay. We just felt, you know, it was no way was it going. To, and we were getting a lot of, you know input from our members, pressure from our members, pressure from our exhibitors. They were getting ready to ship materials, sometimes, you know, from all over the world. And so when it was still kind of, it certainly wasn't black and white, we made the very painful decision to cancel the Craft Brewers Conference and 
and you know made the commitment to refund all of the exhibitor revenue we had taken in, all of the attendee registration revenue we had taken in, and all of the sponsorship revenue. And at that time, we were not certain that we would not be on the hook for additional millions of dollars to mm-hmm. the convention center and to the hotels. If there's a good, you know, any silver lining from that is that we did, we were able to invo- invoke the force majeure clauses in our contracts, and we were not ob- financially obligated to the convention center and to the hotel. Yeah, and obviously the BA so makes a the BA know, makes a substantial. Millions of, we, Sorry, go ahead. As we said, we commit, you know, to thousands, to booking thousands, thousands of room nights at these hotels, and if we don't, you know, hit to like eighty percent. That we're on the hook for yeah. all of those room nights. So, like, if we had zero room nights, I mean, the bill was like, you know, I don't know, it was like ten million dollars or something. Oh, <laughs> but I'm, we did not, we did not have to pay that. That's good. Obviously, you know, the BA makes a substantial portion of its annual revenue from events, including obviously the canceled CBC, the GABF, and Saver. You know, with events of that nature canceled for the foreseeable future, you know, how is the BA dealing with that loss of revenue? Um. Well, on one hand, I think very, very well. I'm incredibly proud of my team for all of the, you know, resources that we continue to pump out uh, to serve our brewery members. Uh, On the other hand, you know, we've had to make significant operational cuts in a number of different areas, and unfortunately that included, you know, fairly significant portion of our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gone from a $29 million budget for 2020 in terms of revenue down to $10 million. So that's about 70% of our revenue that yeah. we've lost uh, in 2020. Uh, the good news would be that, you know, we still have a fairly diversified revenue stream that is not event-related. You know, and that's membership, both in the BA Professional Division and the American Homebrewers Association. Uh, book sales for mm-hmm. the books that we publish through Brewers Publications. Advertising and sponsorship revenue through both for Zymergy and the New Brewer. Uh, and then there is still, you know, we still have some, we have about a million dollars in event revenue coming in this year through, we're going to execute the GABF competition in the fall. Mm-hmm. And that generated about a million dollars. So, and all of those other revenue streams that I mentioned, Andy, are actually, you know, once COVID hit, we canceled CBC and we canceled the festival portion of GABF, you know, we've redone our annual budget two or three times. But, you know, with the budget that we're, you know, operating under now to the end of the year, well, we reduced projections and and all of those revenue, other revenue areas, uh, we are exceeding those projections okay. pretty much across the board. Hmm. So, I mean, mem- interest in membership is strong. Interest support from the allied trade community and sponsoring and advertising mm-hmm. is strong. Uh, book sales for the first, like for the first like time in like four years or over budget. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and this is, you know, for me and for a handful of my key management team, this is the way it was 20 years ago. Right. Right. You know, the CBC did not, was not always this behemoth that generated millions of dollars of revenue. And the GABF for a number of years at the association lost money. Right. So, um, so 
so I'm fortunate that, you know, I've gone through this to some extent once, and so have some of my key management team. So, you know, and then the other thing that is, has happened over the course of all those years is that, you know, we have built up sizable cash reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, we've used quite a bit of those reserves to get us to where we are, to get us, you know, to, to get us to today. But, you know, the measure, the steps we've made in cutting spending, cutting staff, uh, are all about making sure that the Brewers Association is going to be here in the future. And I'm talking not just one year or three years, but 10, 15, mm-hmm. 20 years down the road. And you noted, and, uh, I'm, I'm confident we will be. You noted that since the beginning of the year, the BA has announced layoffs of a number of employees, including many well-known long-term employees. How did the BA decide where to focus its resources and, you know, why certain individuals and positions like the AHA director, the craft beer director, you know, quality ambassador, and in sort of the guild liaison position should be let go to focus resources elsewhere? Sure. Uh, and I'm not sure but I'm going to agree with the notion that the resources are being focused elsewhere. Uh, they were – we. W- the way those decisions are made is it's a collaborative process between myself and my senior management team. Uh, the board of directors doesn't tell me you know, the strategic direction I get from the board is you need to reduce your salary and benefits expense line item. Mm-hmm. It's way out of whack for a $10 million organization, which I already knew. So they don't micromanage. They give strategic direction and then they leave it to me to try to execute that strategic direction at the tactical level. The approach we took is we looked at spending and what we call our discretionary areas of spending. And so for us, those three main buckets of discretionary spending are government affairs, craft beer program, and our technical program. Those are all programs and projects and functions of the BA that we didn't have 10 years ago. Hmm. And through the success of the Craft Brewers Conference primarily, but also GABF, we have grown our revenues over the last 10 years from 10 million to 30 million in annual revenues. And that growth has allowed us to create those programs and projects, hire staff to support those programs and projects. And that's kind of fueled the association. So as we looked at our new reality of going from 30 to to 10 in terms of revenue, we focused our cuts, reduction in expenses in those areas that don't generate revenue and they're somewhat discretion. Again, in our in our nomenclature, that's the discretionary mm-hmm. spending programs. So we don't government affairs. So that one's done for there. What we look, our purpose is staying the same: is promote and protect, promote and protect American craft brewers, their beers, and the community of brewing enthusiasts. So government affairs is always going to stay uh, top of mind for us. Sure. But you know, and the and the reductions in staffs, you know, in, in particular staff positions, it was all about the position, not about the person. Of course, of course. None of the people that we let go deserved to be let go i hired all of the all of the high all of the high profile people that we let go i hired 
So, you know, it was very difficult to deliver that news, certainly more difficult for them to hear it and for me to deliver it. But, you know, it's it's been a rough few months for yeah. sure. So, you know, so can we – so getting into some of the harder numbers, like on the technical side, you mentioned the ambassador program, yet we cut that. And those weren't employees. Those are independent contractor right. arrangements we have for like a safety ambassador, a quality ambassador, uh, sustainability ambassador, et cetera. And then, you know, we cut uh, in the government affairs program, we cut about a half a million dollars in uh, research grants that we've been issuing over the last five years where we have been tried to step into the void created by the big brewers, larger brewers not funding as much research in terms of primarily hop and barley uh, uh, research and research and development. Uh, so we eliminated that. Uh, so cut, huge cut there. We eliminated the supply chain specialist position because we're not going to be doing as much on the supply mm -hmm. chain side in the near future. Uh, we eliminated the craft beer program. Uh, you know, uh, again, it was that was a program that was put in place about 10 years ago, um, and it was seen as you know at the end of the day, it's it was more of a it was more of a, a, a nice to have than a need to have in this environment. Mm -hmm. uh, we're still going to do promote efforts through lots of different different areas, uh, events either virtually or in person, our websites, our publications. And you know our media work, uh, but you know we've evolved a lot as an organization since that uh, program was created. And then in government affairs, you know what we what we looked at there was, you know, with respect to the the, the, the guild manager position, primary functions of that position were to travel to state guilds. Twenty 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 that position was earmarked to uh, travel to 20 separate occasions uh, to administer our executive director guild grant program, which we eliminated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and then coordinate national uh, gatherings of, of guild leaders uh, a couple of times a year at the Craft Brewers Conference and at the CBC. That was kind of the thought thought process around, you know, all those cuts. And so we would, we cut our expenses. Uh, we went from $28 million in expenses to 15. Wow. Yeah. So that's the good news. The bad news is that's 15 to the bad and 10 to the good. We're still going to lose 5 million bucks this year. Yeah. And you, one of the things you had mentioned was, uh, you know, the loss of the, you know, the, having to cut the guild liaison position. And I know that, you know, recently directors of more than 20 brewery guilds had, you know, sent a letter to you and the BA's board of directors asking you to reinstate that particular position, the state guild manager position. And, you know, they had said that, you know, it was it's sort of a, as they, I think, put it, it said it was signals to our guilds that our board, you know, that they're now on their own. Now, obviously, the times here are, are incredibly tough and like something we've never seen in terms of the finances. But how have you responded to the guild's concerns about the loss of that connection to the national organization? Uh, we've tried to listen. Uh, 
myself and uh, the board chair, Dan Kleban, met with all of the State Guild executive directors uh, last Thursday, a week ago today. I spoke to the Guild leaders at length, and we had an open floor and open discussion. Uh, I empathize with them. I understand there's fear, there's sadness, there's anger uh, out there. But at the same time, I tried to assure them that, uh, well, I know we've pulled a lot of financial funding from supporting the State Guild. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a fact. Right. Uh, but I assured them that strategic imperative for the Brewers Association from the board on down is to support State Guilds. And we are going to continue to do that. And I, uh, you know, ask that we be judged on our actions. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, the Brewers Association, no one individual, you know, helped build up the State Guild, State Guild Network. Mm -hmm. It was a collaborative process from Brewers Association staff and State Guild leaders. Uh, we've taken a step backwards there, but I've think we can build it up again. And what do you think the Brewers Association looks like on the other end of, of the pandemic? You know, does it then turn to focus, you know, does it try to rebuild these programs that have, have, you know, had to be, you know, had funding go, you know, towards, you know, that just the funding isn't there anymore. Does it try to rebuild them or does this, does the government affairs portion you know, which has always been a, a strong portion of the BA and a big focus, does that become, you know, the primary or the, or the, or the over, you know, the, the stronger part of the BA's focus? You know, uh, for 2020, it's more about stability and survival. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, we've hit our low point. Uh, we're on our way back in 2021. You know, we're going to, our purpose and our mission have not changed. We're going to continue to provide great programs and projects and value to our members. We're going to continue to do events, but in a different manner. Uh, we don't think that we will automatically flip a switch and go back to a $30 million trade association. But I do think we can get back to being a $15 million association next year. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's if all of our events are virtual, right? If our, if we can have an in-person CBC, which right now is, you know, questionable at best, very uncertain or an in-person GABF, which is also uh, questionable. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll be significantly larger than fifteen million dollars in revenue. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're preparing for the we're preparing for the probability that all of our events will be virtual, which will mean scaled down revenue models, but still not insignificant revenue. Uh, we won't be surprised when that happens, and we'll be pleasantly we'll. Be pleasantly, we will be pleasantly surprised if we're allowed to do in-person events. 
the the in, the the interest in from the exhibitor uh, community our allied trade members and an in-person CBC in San Diego is very very strong. Okay. So we're very heartened by that. But would we like to bring back some of the programs and projects that we had to get rid of? Absolutely. I mean, we know that, you know, certainly on the technical side, the technical that, you know, we, and one, I should have mentioned, Andy, you know, one of the other data uh, references we used in helping make our guide our decisions when we looked at um, some of the staff and program reductions we had to make was, you know, we look, we do a membership satisfaction survey on our benefits every year. Mm-hmm. And so we looked at that as well. And, you know, the technical brewing resources that we provide uh, through Chuck Skypack and Chris Swoosey and our technical committee and all of our subcommittees uh, ranks very, very high right. on, uh, on, on value and why people join and stay BA members. So we're going to keep that top of mind. Uh, what I would we like to bring back the guild's manager position? Absolutely. And would we like to bring back the craft beer program director? Yes. But, you know, we didn't we didn't call these furloughs. We called them layoffs because, you know, it would be disingenuous to tell any, any of those individuals, hey, just hang on right. for three right. months, six months, because we don't know, man. Right. I mean, it's like the, the future is very, very uncertain. But... Yeah. We're going to be okay. In addition to the challenges posed by COVID-19, we've also seen a growing public and industry discussion over issues of diversity and inclusion and social justice. Um, On June 2nd, the BA released a statement on its various social media handles in regards to DNI and social justice issues. Um, In terms of that particular statement, you know, there have been, there has been some you know, blowback, I think, you know, on Twitter and some on social media, you know, which which certainly happens. Uh, but just to sort of start out, do you think the craft beer industry is inclusive? Good question. Tough question. I guess I'm going to say yes and no. Uh, do I think the vast majority of people who I've met in my career think of themselves as, as inclusive? I think undoubtedly yes. But are we doing everything that we could to demonstrate that? Absolutely not. You know, and we have done a pretty poor job as an industry of attracting uh, a, a more varied group of people to work in the industry, group of people to uh, be supporters of the industry. Um, but, you know, f- for me, you know, the diversity inclusion issue, if that's something I call a topic, an issue, it's not a problem to be solved. It's kind of more, it's a, it's a value that we have to live each and every day. And we have to show it through our words and actions. And, you know, I, we follow the social media chatter. We know 
we know it's out there. Uh, we know we can do better. Um, but, you know, I would say that, you know, we have done, it's not enough, but, you know, we've created, we created our diversity committee in 2017. We updated the advertising and marketing code to provide, you know, higher standards on inclusive beer advertising and marketing also in 17. Hired Dr. J to be our first ever diversity ambassador in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, the committee convert, created the uh, diversity event grant program in 2018. Uh, we sponsored the North American Guild of Beer Writers Diversity and Beer Writing Grant 2018. Provided some resources on diversity best practices in 2019. Uh, We've sent Dr. J around the country the last few years, uh, speaking to breweries and state guilds and how to do a better job in all of this. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very important issue for the Brewers Association. We recognize our role as leaders in the community. Uh, but sometimes in the association world, uh, the wheels of justice turn slowly. And by that, I mean, you know, we're a member driven, driven organization. So we work. With, we work through our committees. So our diversity committee is, you know, talking about this, wrestling with this, uh, plotting our course of action forward. Our governance committee uh, that, you know, has, that is responsible for our bylaws and uh, things of that nature are also, you know, deeply, deeply engaged on this issue. And you you note the things that the BA has done, and are there other tangible steps that you know consumers and the industry can expect the BA to take this year or in the near future on these issues? Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of uh, you know uh, energy right now in the social media space to quote unquote kick out racist breweries. Mm -hmm. So we're aware of that discussion. Uh, I would say that's easier said than done. Uh, but one of the, what, what I can tell you is that the Brewers Association, you know, we, I, we recognized when, you know, you know, sparked by, you know, the killing of George Floyd, that we had a governance gap um, in our bylaws. And by that, I mean, we included, absent from our bylaws is a mechanism or language that would allow the Brewers Association to revoke a brewery member's membership status. So first step for us is the first step for us is to correct that governance gap and put that mechanism in the bylaws and then make sure all of our members are aware of that. And so that's when I said the wheels of justice turn slowly. That is a very painful, detailed, and convoluted process, but we're working on it. 
and uh, we hope to have language to present to the membership here on this issue shortly. And so, do that you doesn't mean we're gonna that, that doesn't mean we're gonna kick anybody out necessarily or revoke membership. It, the first step is to create that mechanism. Now, is that something you would support to actually, you know, because I've seen that online as well, and certainly people have been tweeting that at you. You know, we've seen in recent years and certainly in recent months, uh, some brewery owners doing some, you know, saying some terrible things to consumers, doing terrible things to, uh, or, you know, just sort of bad things uh, along these lines to employees, creating, you know, unsafe, if not downright threatening environments, uh, you know, to ranging to a place like Founders that had, you know, a substantial federal lawsuit, you know, filed against them for employment discrimination practices. Is that something you would support the, you know, the removal from the organization of, you know, member breweries that violate these these norms? We, you know, I work for the board of directors and all of us, you know, work collectively for our members, for the brewery members you know, that pay, pay the dues. If we can get a sense from our membership that that is where they would like us to head, then yes. If not, then I would want to take another look at it. Um, we're not hearing a lot on this from our members. Okay. There's a lot of energy in the social media space but we are not being you know, overrun by input from voting brewery members. Mm -hmm. And that's who we work for sure. on this issue. Now, that doesn't mean they don't care and it's not important to them. I just think right now, they, like a lot of us, are in survival mode and they have other issues that are, that are taking up their, you know, their headspace. Mm -hmm. But we are working on it. It's top of mind for the diversity committee. It's top of mind for the governance committee. The first step, the first step that we're working on again is putting in together the, the mechanism within the bylaws that will allow us to revoke membership. Then, assuming that that is, uh, you know, accepted by the membership, that'll be part of our bylaws. So we would have that mechanism. And second step would be to put in a process for a member brewery to bring a complaint against another member brewery for racist, sexist, or otherwise objectionable behavior, and then a process that would evaluate that accusation, and then recommend a course of action to the board of directors. So we are, we, we, and then the third step is we are working on put on a creating a code of conduct that every brewery member would would sign when they became or be new just a BA member. You noted that the BA represents thousands of member breweries around the country. And you know, while obviously the, the BA does not control the hiring decisions or the behavior of, of individuals, whether they're owners or employees at those places, it does sort of, you know, it can set a national message and set an example. When you look at the BA's own ranks, do you think that the BA's staff is diverse? course not. I mean, we're diverse in, uh, you know, before our term, our reduction in force measures started, we were 
you know, about 50-50 female to male. Now we skew, skew a little more male to female. But no, we need to do a better job of attracting uh, candidates that are of people of people of color and other minorities. And I think and I think we will. And are there particular things that you can point to? You know, because obviously the organization's gone on for a long time. You know, how do you think it got to this point that you know? Because if you look at the BAs, you know, even before the layoffs, if you look at the BAs website and you look at the team, it is a sea of white faces. So how did it get to this For point, sure. and how does it, you know, how does it, de- you know, get to a better place? I think we were reactive instead of proactive. We just accepted that, you know, our environment where we're based, Boulder, Colorado, is a, you know, predominantly white Caucasian community, and we were not proactive enough in trying to go out and recruit minority candidates. I think one thing that COVID has taught us, right, is that anybody can do the job from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So living in Boulder, Colorado, or living in Colorado, or Denver, you know, the front range of, you know, we definitely have a, prior to COVID-19, we certainly had a preference for candidates to work in our office. We liked people being physically present in the office here in Boulder. Now, that COVID-19 has taught us that, you know, that probably is not going to necessarily be needed or required moving forward. So mm-hmm. that opens up, that's going to present a huge opportunity for us to uh, recruit and attract and hire a more diverse workforce. So I'm excited. I'm excited mm-hmm. about that. And yeah, you know, and this is something I've, I've talked about with Bart Watson and other folks at the BA about the trouble of sort of attracting, you know, you know, diverse talent because of the location of the organization. But another way the association can help promote diversity and and in sort of the industry is both in its messaging and public outreach is also through the contractors it hires. You know, the association in the past has you know paid millions of dollars to its PR agencies. It now works with Backbone Media. You know, which is a place that if you look at its website, which I did today, and its list of team members, it's you know got 70 or 80 people on there. It's all white faces. Do you think that it's important for the organization beyond its own numbers to start trying to you know, work with a diverse set of contractors and outside voices? Yes. And was that something, was it all considered when you hired a company like Backbone? I'd have to re- go back and review the RFP process. You know, we went from the Rosen Group to Backbone. Uh, you know, but let me see what I can find there. You know, I, I'm looking at the RFP. Uh, Andy, I would say we did not consider the diversity of backbone when we selected them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, I'd say before the last few months of, you know, really, I think, sparked by the killing of George Floyd, um, we didn't really have that as part of our process for selecting any vendor. But uh, we're learning, and we are going to include the diversity of ownership 
and of vendor staff as part of future RFPs. So I know we spoke about that yesterday, in fact, with our diversity committee. Uh, one of the things we're going to be trying to implement within the BA so we can lead and do better is uh, the implementation of what we're calling an equity scorecard. So we can kind of establish benchmarks of, and provide strategic guidelines that's going to allow, or, allow us to you know, execute on a broader context of all vendor selections. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, prior to to the, the George Floyd killing, that you know we were focused more on selecting hopefully the best agency and not the most diverse. And now I think the objective will be to try to find a sweet spot uh, between both of those objectives, which I think we can do. Is it something that you regret that not looking at these issues sooner? Regret. Do I wish, you know, we had a more diverse workforce? Yes. But... You know, am I happy with the people that we've hired or the vendors that we've hired? Yes. So, you know, my style is not to look back. It's to look forward. Uh, this is clearly going to become a very important part of our everyday life, and I welcome that. I welcome that challenge. You had referenced earlier uh, that the BA would offer an online GABF experience in lieu of the incredibly popular in-person experience. Um, and obviously the BA sponsored a well, a very well-regarded and well-run online version of CBC. Can you talk a little bit more about what the online GABF would look like and, and, and what success would look like for the BA with an online GABF? Uh, yeah. We want to, Success for, for me is we want to do a virtual GABF, not so much for the revenue component because we don't have any of any revenue for virtual GABF in our 2020 budget because we didn't pivot to that format until later. Success to me looks like uh, we keep, we bring the community together. That to me is something we take a lot of pride in and that we know we can we know we can do that when it's an in-person environment uh, we've learned a lot on bringing people together our community together together virtually uh, through our work with first the uh, the craft Brewers conference online experience but maybe even more so with our with homebrew con online we mm -hmm. you know shifted that entire model late in the game when we pulled out of Nashville, the in-person homebrew con, and we did homebrew con online over three days, uh, you know, in the middle of June. And the online experience for the Brew Nighted or the virtual GBF is going to look a lot more like that. So it's going to be a few days of educational uh, sessions put on by rock stars of the craft brewing community. Um, you know, listening to people like Sam Calgioni or Vinny and Natalie, you know, or Ken Grossman, 
talk about what, uh, you know, what's going on in their world and, and drinking a beer with them in a virtual environment. Uh, we're, we are working to enlist participation of breweries that are, com- that are participating in the competition that would then provide, you know, kind of a perk for the attendee that buys what we're calling a passport. So Andy buys a passport, and I'm not sure. Are you in Boston? Um, yes, in Boston. And then you go, you go to a, you know, the Sam Adams Brew House, or you go to Jack's Abbey, or you know, you go to Allagash and you're in Maine. And if you have the passport, then you get some type of special offer that the brew, that the participating brewery is uh, offering GABF passport holders. And then the one of the virtual um, highlights is for us is going to be able to give uh, those interested a kind of pull, pull back the curtain or pe- let people put the, the camel's nose under the tent when it comes to the competition. And so we'll be, you know, announcing the uh, the winners of the of the 2020 Great American uh, Beer Festival competition in con- collaboration in conjunction with the Brewing Network. And uh, you know, trying to really make that an exciting part of the experience. Lots and lots of new stuff. Yes, and just sort of in wrapping up here, can you just talk to me about you know sort of what are the major upcoming points of focus for the BA in terms of its uh, government affairs? Uh, you know, we you know, efforts we have obviously you know seen issues with PPP and tax relief and and even debt relief. What are yeah. the you know what are the focal points yeah. going to be? Well, one of the things we didn't talk about, Andy, and I'm surprised you haven't asked me about that yet, is the hiring of Mark Serini. Yes, that is is certainly an area to get into. (laughs) I'd love to speak about that because there's a lot of there's a lot of there's there's a lot of people out there, a lot of people in the media world that aren't as good as you, Andy. And there's (laughs) a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of uh, I don't they're I will I will characterize them as inaccurate assumptions. Mm -hmm. Uh. What I guess I want to say about Mark is uh, it's a test. It proves that, you know, we're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hiring of Mark Serini has been in the works for 18 months. Mark, Mark, Mark and my first conversation uh, regarding him leaving McDermott and coming to work for the Brewers Association was in February of 2019. Uh, Mark's start date at the association was put in place, was pegged, in January of 2020. Okay. Uh, and he had a six-month wind-down from McDermott. Mm-hmm. I understand that the timing of our his hire is awkward in the light of the staff reductions sure. we had to do. But for anyone to assume that we robbed Peter to pay Paul would be, would be wrong. Uh, Mark was not hired to help us now he's going to be in DC, so I can kind of get kind of get this a little bit. But Mark was hired not to help us lead on federal issues, which are led by our federal affairs ma- manager Katie Marisic and myself. Mark was hired to fight the good fight where most fights in beverage alcohol are fought, and that's at the state, state legislative level. level. Yep. And that's why and that's why Mark Serini was hired. So now, when a state guild comes to us and say, "Hey," We might want to take on, you know, franchise law reform. We might want to take on 
direct-to-consumer shipping. We want to take on making permanent some of the uh, regulations and laws that were eased during mm-hmm. COVID. Now, Mark can write the legislation for them. He can go and testify in front of state legislatures. This is going to give us the opportunity to go on the offensive, and it's going to help you know, the state guilds and hopefully our smallest members preserve what is always at the core of our government affairs efforts, access to market. And so, the, and then, you know, people looking at our stewardship report or reading our 990 and saying, oh, everything they paid in legal fees is going to Serini's salary. That's, that's lazy. That's lazy journalism. Yep. Guess what? We pay, we pay a lot of lawyers and a lot of law firms, a lot of money for a lot of different things. And it all doesn't go to McDermott, Will and Emery. So you've obviously taken some backlash for that. And obviously, you know, as you said, the timing is such that it, you know, it complicates <laughs> it. And I can certainly see how some people would jump to those assumptions. You know, does it, does it bother you that you've gotten the criticism? Because, it, you know, from where I'm sitting, I, I would agree. I think Serini is an excellent hire for the organization for a variety of reasons. And I, you know, maybe it's because I am an attorney by trade and I practice. And so I'm familiar with how firms work. Um, you know, I think it seems like it's, it, it's, it's a great step forward for the BA, but have you, you know, are you sort of upset at all about the, you know, taking, taking heat for this? Well, in the end, no, because guess who I'm not taking any heat from? Yeah. Yeah. No, the my board. members. Yeah. No, I work for my, I work for the members, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, but it, it is a little frustrating to see, you know, some segments of the media not try to do a little more accurate job uh, when it comes to reporting. But the, the reaction from the members and from the state guild leaders about Mark Sire is over the moon. Mm-hmm. No, he's obviously spoken yeah, spoken gonna, at these organizations you know, for years. He's spoken at conferences for years. I've caught him many, many times and thought his performances, you know, his, the information is excellent. So You can make the case he's the subject matter expert on beverage alcohol law in this country, and now he's a full-time employee of the BA. Yeah. I'm confident we will, de- we will deliver extremely high ROI yeah. on this hire. Beyond uh, Attorney Serini, what other efforts are, are you looking to highlight? Well, with state, with government affairs, you know, there's the federal effort, which is, you know, trying to get the craft beverage bill made permanent and not getting off the uh, extender uh, cycle that mm-hmm. is so frustrating. Um, so that's, you know, that's number one on, on the federal level. Um, opposing tariffs, you know, is, is, is up there in the federal level and, you know, working with the TTB to you know, make sure they have the funds they needed to do trade practice enforcement. You know, interesting decision or interesting ruling coming out today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, but, but where, we're, where we're more focused is on the, in government affairs is on the state level. And primary, first and foremost there is, again, is, you know, access to market for our smallest members. If, you know, 70% of the breweries in this country, I think, you know, Andy, are brew pubs or tap rooms. Right. And they're, they're, they're getting slaughtered, uh, you know, and, if, you know, if it wasn't for being allowed to alter their business model and PPP loans, I think we've seen a lot more of them go out of business. Mm-hmm. We, if, and if, and, you know, and then the on-premise, which they are more dependent upon than the packaging or the production breweries, uh, if the, the on-premise is not going to just come back overnight, it's fits and 
starts and fits, fits and stops. Uh, if the beer drinker can't go to the on-premise, we are going to be advocating to get the beer to the beer drinker in a legal and you know responsible mm -hmm. and you know compliant manner. But uh, the sky did not fall during COVID when breweries were allowed to do beer to go or do beer to or do beer delivery, or in some cases do direct to consumer shipping. And all of those fall to us fall under the access to market issue. And that's going to be our focus on the state side. You noted other you, than that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you noted, you know, talking about earlier about places closing and, and sort of in, in closing here. I just want to talk in the early days of COVID, we were seeing, you know, even from some of, you know, Bart's numbers, uh, you know, from doing some some surveys of the membership, just how, about how long individual breweries could hold out without you know being open or with limited you know limited offerings or limited availability to the public. You know, we have not thankfully seen those numbers, whether they were twenty or thirty percent closing in you know three months or four months or whatever the numbers were. Yeah. Do you expect you know, and those may be for reasons like you said, PPP or you know being able to you know pivot and do these to go orders, the loosening of you know, the relaxing of some of the local and state regulations and about alcohol service to the public. How many places do you expect or, you know, what do you sort of see for places, you know, staying open or potentially closing in the next few months? We're seeing a resurgence in COVID in, in, in various spots yeah. around the country. It's not just going away. How long do you think folks can last? Member breweries can last in, you know, especially smaller tap rooms in the present circumstance? Well, I don't want to be the voice of doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we were, you know, when we were, the, the information we report out is based on survey data that, you know, we get from our members. And yes, you referenced in our first survey, you know, significant percentage said they you know, couldn't last three months if the on-premise data closed for three months. That proved not to be accurate. Uh, the picture, the final story hasn't been written. I think if you if you are primarily dependent on on-premise business, your future the, the future is tenuous. Right. Uh, because you know, like you like you mentioned, uh, you know, I think for, for a lot of on-premise breweries, you know, the summer months are some of their larger revenue months, mm -hmm. and how long can okay many states are now open at some some level but how long can you go at 50 percent capacity how long can you go being open and then have forced to shut down again uh, and then what happens if there is you know if the if the virus gets worse which right now that's you know kind of looks like what's happening uh, so uh, it's really really tough out there for the smallest operators we're very tuned into that i mean our average member is about 600 barrels in size you know we don't lose sight of that um, but at the same time as i know you know you know for a lot of the breweries that uh, you know put their beer into cans or bottles they're doing they're doing quite well right. we're positive for and we're, and we're happy for them in conclusion here, what sort of message of hope or inspiration or final thoughts do you have for your industry members? Oh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to address that. Of course. Uh, 
number one, uh, Brewers Association isn't going anywhere. Uh, we're here for the long haul. Uh, we've taken our lumps like many of our members have, uh, but we're going to continue to lead and you know sometimes we might be or not as uh we don't we're not able to react maybe as quickly as some segments of our community would like but i would ask that you know people evaluate us on our actions and i'm confident that uh, we will continue to be the to, to earn people's trust and be the leader that we've established ourselves as and over the last decade Bob, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today about this whole variety of issues. Obviously, things are complicated and continuing to you know, be that way for the foreseeable future, but hoping to, at some point here, see you in person and have a beer. Appreciate the, uh, the thoroughness of the interview, Andy. Uh, same to you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and happy to be with you anytime. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.